now you are allowed to listen to Christmas music, uh, and now you are allowed to talk about Christmas and have Christmas tree up because Christmas because Thanksgiving has passed. Uh, and so all that to say is we're so excited to launch this new series. Uh, I just want to thank Aaron, the Lantings, did such a wonderful job of helping us uh, create this environment of worship uh, in this new uh, series called Senses, or Coming to Our Senses. And, and each week we're going to be talking about how we encounter God with different senses that we have. That God, through the baby, through Jesus, has come through as a real human being to be with us, Emmanuel, exactly what we're saying. And so we, we, we rejoice because of Emmanuel, that God is with us. And we, and we worship and we encounter God through our sight, which is today, and then through our different senses, our smell, our taste, uh, our feel, and, and other ways throughout the weeks. And so I'm so excited for this Advent season, to be with you, our, our community, and I encourage us to be here each week to, to see how God will speak to us during this time. Uh, and so with that said, let me just start off with a prayer to kick off uh, our new series. <clears throat> God, thank you so much that you've gathered us here to, to hear and to learn and to see more of who you are, especially during this Advent season the season that you came down to be here with us. And God, I know that there's so much disappointment here this weekend with the big loss on Friday afternoon. But God, yet be with us in the midst of that. In your name we pray, amen. Any, any cougs in the house here? I know, I know this is kind of an unfriendly territory with the dogs, but I was very uh, disappointed with the outcome, and I'll just say that uh, out loud. So, so a lot of you guys know, uh, by day, people joke and say, by day, you are a pastor, by night, you are a, a CrossFit coach. That's what I do for a hobby. I love it. Uh, and uh, it's, it's an opportunity for me to kind of step outside of the church world and just to kind of be with people and to meet people from all spectrums of life. Uh, and it's one of my favorite things to do uh, as I try to be jesus to the people around our community and where we're, where we're at. Uh, and a lot of this, uh, part of being a fitness coach or a CrossFit coach, I get this all the time. Well, people will come up to me, uh, and the frequent question that we ask is, all right, what is your goal? You know, whatever gym you go to or CrossFit gym or whatever it is, uh, more often than not, the person, the personal trainer or whoever he or she might be will ask, what, what is your goal as you come into this gym? <coughs> and the person will, will tell the coach the, the goal, uh, and, and then the coach will kind of develop a plan, a goal, it's kind of a long-term plan to actually get them there at some point. But the whole idea is that the athlete must trust the coach and that the coach knows what he or she is doing uh, in developing this plan to reach, to help them reach this goal. And so this goal that I hear, for example, I hear all the time is, I want to be able to do a pull-up. All right, just a pull-up. And before, you know, you say anything, believe it or not, there's, I hear this all the time for both men and women, that apprentice, uh, the first thing that I want to do is I want to learn, I want to be able to get strong enough to do a pull-up. And I said, okay, well then let's develop a plan to get you there. 
And, and so maybe uh, the first step is actually not doing an actual pull-up, because here she might not be able to do that yet, but it's what we call doing a ring row, okay? So it's a pair of rings, not even a bar, where they'll lay kind of horizontal, and they'll kind of pull themselves up as an immediate step towards the pull-up. And, and this person could be doing a ring row for probably weeks and months. And then finally we'll say, okay, now you are ready to take the next step. And maybe that next step is beyond the ring rows, what we call it. And we get them on a band, like a resistant band. And, and we give them resistance to help them do several pull-ups. <clears throat> and once they start developing the certain muscles that's needed for that, then we then we uh, give them a, a smaller resistance band, and then a smaller one, and a smaller one. And eventually, eventually this person, he or she, will do a pull-up, and it's the most exciting thing in the world for the person and for the coach. And it's such an awesome event. It's such an incredible thing to witness. But this journey of getting this person to do their first pull-up is typically not an easy one. Uh, it's, it's not like this person says, okay, well, I'll trust everything you say, and I'll do everything uh, you tell me to do. No, it comes with a lot of pain sometimes. Sometimes it comes with a lot of struggle. And, and it's this whole thing of journey. And, and the cool thing is, is that the person who achieves that goal, they don't go there because they necessarily believe that it'll actually happen to them just like that. They go because they trust their coach. And the coach, whether that be me or somebody else, all I say is, trust me, listen to what I say, and just keep showing up. Just keep showing up. Because commonly I hear, Prince, I can't do it. What does this ring row have anything to do with the pull-up? What does this have anything to do with my goal? Friends, I feel like I've been working my tail off, and yet I have not seen improvement. Or, friends, I don't think I'll ever be able to achieve this goal, name that goal, whatever it is. And all I say is, just trust me. I know you're filled with doubt. You doubt me as your coach. That's okay. You doubt yourself and your abilities. But we're going to get you there. Listen, trust me, and just keep showing up. And when I hear this, and when, when I encounter these experiences, which I do quite frequently, it actually reminds me a lot about the Christian faith, the Christian journey. Isn't our Christian faith oftentimes like that athlete, filled with doubt at some point, of questions, of, of hesitation, and doubt is an easy place for all of us <coughs> to land, to set up shop. Because even when it comes to our faith, showing up takes work, and it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to believe that God will actually answer your prayers. Sometimes you doubt that God will actually come through in God's promises to you. Sometimes we doubt that God is actually in his gracious love and mercy, no matter who you are, is chasing after you, pursuing you right now as you're seated in that chair. And yet because of our circumstances, because of 
the cards that were, we were dealt in life, because of our experiences, because of our past mistakes, we have a hard time believing that such a gracious God would pursue us. See, the doubt, regardless of where this doubt comes from, people all over Scripture have wrestled with doubt, just like you and me. <clears throat> and we look at the Gospel of Luke, and we read that you know, just a few minutes ago, that the opening chapters of Luke reveals three realities of doubt. Reveals three realities of doubt. See, what we understand is that doubt reveals itself in one of two ways. It's either we doubt that God will come through, that God can fill in the blank, or we believe or we doubt that we can, that God will use us. And the third thing is, at the end of it, in either case, what we see and what we will see in Luke chapter one is that in either case, God writes the end of the story whether it's you doubting God, whether it's you doubting yourself, the third point is, regardless of where you stand in that spectrum, that God writes the end of the story, that God does not let us sit in our doubt, God is not angry with our doubt, God walks alongside of us in our doubt and comes through. So we'll, we'll see that uh, throughout Luke chapter 1, and I just encourage you during this Advent season to, to go through Luke. The first few chapters is all about this Advent period, this expectation of our Savior, of our Messiah, Jesus. See, Luke was written when a time, uh, it, it, was a, it was a very unsettling time in, in the ancient Near East. Uh, it was a time when there was Roman rule, uh, and, and the Romans were oppressing the Jews at this time, and for a long time, actually. Uh, and there's this, there this message, even from, the very, even from the Old Testament, saying that there's going to be a Savior, a Messiah that's going to come into the ancient Near East and save you from this oppression, from this hardship, from the despair that the emperor of Rome, at the time Nero, uh, has been implementing on our society, in your culture, in your world. And, and see, the way that we talk about Savior, Messiah, is like this word that we throw around and saying, uh, well, that's Jesus for us. That's, that's God. He's our Savior, my personal Lord Jesus Christ. See, back then, Savior had an actual literal meaning, is that during this time of oppression in Roman rule, that there's going to be a, a real life, literally a Savior that's going to save them, that's literally going to rescue them from their hardship. Because right now, all they see is their own people being taxed overly taxed, so they're poor. Uh, we see people being persecuted because of their faith. We see ultimately uh, in 70, 80, a few years, or when this book was written after Jesus' death, that the Roman Empire comes in and destroys the holy temple in Jerusalem. It was in this context that Luke is writing and saying, in the midst of all of this, you have every single reason to doubt but know that a savior is coming. An actual real life person is going to rescue you, us, from this mess. 
And that's the kind of the context of which we're working with. And even, you know, they were expecting this soldier, this, this warrior to come and destroy at the time uh, Emperor Nero, who was known as one of the most uh, evil person, evil man in history, who had very little value for life, who, would, who, who, who he and his uh, military would kill for very small reasons, uh, especially if you considered yourself a follower of the way uh, of Christianity, you'd be put to death. And so it was in this time uh, that Luke is writing, and Luke writes in a very fantastical, in a very surprising way, that in this time in Jewish history, that the rescuer would be some warrior, some messiah on a stallion, on a horse, uh, with a big sword, and yet what we see in Luke, and Luke is very intentional in writing this kind of upside-down kingdom, is saying the rescuer is actually not that. It's not gonna, he, he is not going to come on a horse. He's not going to come with a sword. The one that rescues is going to be coming to this world in the form of a baby. In the form of a baby. That is who our rescuer, our Messiah, our Savior of this mess will be. And yet we see, as we continue on in Luke chapter 1, we see so much doubt. How can this be? How can our Savior actually be in the form of a baby? Will somebody actually come to rescue us from this oppression and from this Roman rule, from this death, from this tax? Will somebody actually come? And we see the story of Zechariah and Mary saying yes, but it was a journey for them to get to point A of doubt to point B of belief. See, before the birth of Jesus, the angel Gabriel approaches Zechariah, uh, which is basically Jesus' uncle, and tells him that his wife, uh, Gabriel tells Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth will be pregnant. Now, this was a time, because at the time, Elizabeth was barren, was without child, was infertile. <clears throat> this was during a time when barrenness for a family equaled shame in the society. If you couldn't have children at this time, it meant shame for you as a, as a woman and also for your entire family. It, it, you guys would be, or the, this family, particularly the woman, would be center of gossip, would be the uh, object of rumors, uh, and, and this woman would be seen as defective. That was the mindset of barrenness at this time. And it was often associated with sin because they believed all over the Old Testament and the New Testament that it was God who opened up wounds, wombs and closed wombs. And so if you were barren, it must be because you were sinful or you did something wrong. And yet we see in Luke chapter 1 uh, that God says to Gabriel, uh, Gabriel uh, in verse 13, he says, your prayers have been heard, Gabriel and Elizabeth. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will call him John. Finally, after so much shame and ridicule for, for Zechariah and Elizabeth, finally, after years and years, they were well into their age, finally, Angel Gabriel says, look, you are going to have a child. And then later in the verses, it says, so therefore you will not be in, sh in shame no longer. 
And we would think that the proper response would have been that of shouting for joy that God has come through, that God is delivering on his promise that they will be removed from this shame and this pain from society. Instead, Zechariah responds this way in verse 18. Instead of that joy, Zechariah says, well, well, Angel Gabriel, a.k.a. God, how can I be sure of this? I am, I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. I always thought that was funny, because he would never call his wife old. He called himself old, but then he says, I'm old, but my wife, she is well along in her ear, years. And so basically what Zechariah is saying is, Angel Gabriel, I hear what you're saying, uh, but there's absolutely no way. I know my circumstance. I know where I'm at in life. There's no way this is possible. Right then and there, uh, Zechariah is filled with doubt. In, in the ancient Greek language, the way he says, uh, how can I be sure of this, is the connotation is prove it. Prove it. I need more evidence because what you tell me right now is not good enough. I am in full-on doubt of what you have to say. And so I need evidence. I need something tangible. Show me something to believe, because right now I don't. The underlining issue here with Zechariah is a doubt that God is able to deliver. The underlining issue here is that God, that Zechariah, underlying issue for Zechariah is that God is not able to overcome and transcend his life circumstance, i.e. them being old. And so he demands proof. And the funny thing is, it says, uh, give me proof. And the first thing that Angel Gabriel does is snaps fingers or something like that and makes him mute, makes him silent. And I always wonder what that was all about. Why did, why did Zechariah have to be silent? And commentators and scholars, they, they actually refuse to believe that it was a punishment for his disbelief. And so a lot of us, we think it's so wrong and so bad to, to have these doubts. And we go to this chapter and say, look, Zechariah was punished because he doubted. Well, actually, it wasn't a punishment. It was actually a sign. Ironically, it was exactly what Zechariah was asking for. Zechariah was saying, I'm in, uh, I'm in disbelief. I'm in doubt. You got to show me your power because there's no way you can work in this life stage that we're in. And God, through Gabriel, is basically saying, oh, you want a sign of my power? You're no longer going to be able to talk. And that, and that was a powerful statement because at this time he was a priest. It was his job to talk, to preach, to tell people about God and to help forgive, be a mediator of sin for people. And he couldn't even do his job. He couldn't talk. That was power. And it's through that Zechariah actually did end up believing. And it was funny because he came out, it says, outside of the temple. And he had to, uh, he had to basically play charades because he couldn't talk. I just think that's a funny, maybe I'm the only one. <laughs> maybe you should read it. But Zechariah is in disbelief and needed evidence that God was powerful. I ask you, where are areas of doubt in your life? Where do you doubt 
that God can and will actually come through for you. Especially in this time of Advent. As Steve was praying, that Advent is so exciting, and yet, for some, it is so dreadful. It is so painful. And so even during this time of Advent, when God is with us, Emmanuel, where is our doubt? Where's your doubt? Where's my doubt? In your loneliness, do you doubt that God loves you? In your worries and anxieties of this time, do you doubt God's presence in your life? In your finances, because you have to buy a bunch of gifts and and worry about your finances, Uh, maybe it's your job, do you doubt that God is and will be your provider? Or maybe it's just watching the news and looking around and you see all these bad news and you see all these horrible things happening, not just in our world, but in our city, in our neighborhood. And you look around and say, God, in this pain, God, where are you? Because I doubt that you are here. <coughs> see, if we're being honest with ourselves, we've all been through a season of doubt. Maybe it was in the past. Maybe it's now, or maybe it will be in the future. That doubt is this natural rhythm part of our Christian journey. Several years ago, I was working at a hospital as a hospital chaplain, uh, and it was in a major trauma center in Los Angeles. And and I remember it was a very memorable time of my life because my nickname, so they knew my name was Pastor Prentice, uh, but then they would call me the Grim Reaper. That was kind of my nickname because anytime I saw them, it was because they would be, they would think that something was wrong. So anytime I would step into a room, they'd say, oh my gosh, what's wrong? Am I going to die? No, relax. I just came to say hi. Uh, but I remember this one moment when I was called up to go to a, uh, a, a room in oncology. Uh, and I was very shocked because no one really asks to come, for me to come see them as a chaplain because to them that means there's something severely wrong. And so I got kind of excited, all right? Somebody wants to talk to the, the hospital pastors, what they would call it. And I'd go up to uh, the unit, and I met the man. Uh, and he started weeping when I walked into the room. And he wanted to pray with me because his prognosis wasn't good. <clears throat> and he says, Prentice, I want you to hear something. And I said, what's that? He says, I'm actually not afraid to die. I'm not afraid to die. It's Okay. He says, but what I am afraid of, and that's why you're here, is that I'm not afraid to die, but I'm afraid to go to hell, is what he said. And I said, okay, keep, keep talking about this. What, what do you mean by, by this fear? Tell me more about this fear. And, and, and he says, well, since I've been in this hospital bed, all I've been doing through my illness and through my physical pain is doubt God's very existence. And he says, and therefore, I know that because of my doubt, God is going to turn his back, and I'm going to go to hell. And he started weeping. And then my response to that, he said, all I do is doubt, all I do is doubt God. And I said in response, you know what? I would, I would doubt too. And I have doubted. He starts weeping and weeping. And for the very first time in his entire life, in his illness even, he had the permission to say, it's okay. To say, God, I don't know. 
See, somewhere along the way, we've convinced ourselves that doubt and faith cannot coexist. Because, I mean, by definition, they seem to contradict each other, right? Doubt and faith seems like they can't go together. But I love what this author uh, and writer, Anne Lamont, says about, about doubt. <clears throat> In one of her books, she says about this about herself. She says, I have a lot of faith, but I'm also afraid a lot, too. I remember something Father Tom, who was a Catholic priest, I remember what Father Tom had told me, that the opposite of faith is not doubt, but it's certainty. Certainty is missing the point entirely, is what Anne Lamont says. And she finishes by saying, faith includes noticing the mess, the emptiness, and the discomfort and letting it be there until the light returns. I love that. I love what she says about doubt. I'll read that last part again, that faith includes noticing the mess, having doubt, having questions, and the emptiness and the discomfort of all of that, and letting it be, knowing, Emmanuel, that God will come, that God will answer, that God will respond in the midst of that. See, sometimes I believe that doubt can be like a shovel that helps us dig deeper into our faith. Doubt can actually be used to draw us closer to God. Sometimes. And I say sometimes because there's a dark side of doubt as well that is destructive. You know, think of it this way. Imagination, right? A lot of us, we have good imagination. Imagination is good. But imagination out of control is called psychosis, is what I know. Fear is healthy. But fear out of control is called paranoia. Anger is a necessary emotion. But too much of anger, you lose control, and it can lead to violence. See, doubt in the same way is good. It's healthy. It brings us actually closer to God. But there's a dark side of doubt that out of control, it can lead to a hard heart, to a cynicism that forces you, that convinces you to stop showing up and to bow out. See, we see through Zechariah that doubt is part of the Christian life. That doubt in God, it exists even for a righteous and holy man, a priest who lit incense. It says incense, which was a room the closest to the holies of holies. He had the privilege to be in the room where he lit incense, which is saying a lot about his status and his faithfulness. Even he had doubts. And second, we see Mary's need for explanation. That first point is that we doubt God. The second point here is that we doubt ourselves. See, on the other side of doubt, uh, it's, it, it, there's another set of doubt that instead of doubting God, it's a move from God, uh, God can never to God would never. So there's a big difference. The first point of us doubting God is about God could never, is what Zechariah is, was saying. Here we see Mary saying, not God could never, but God would never with me. 
See, the angel, again, is a very similar situation. After going to Zechariah, goes to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to have a child. This child is going to be the savior of this world. And the response in Mary says in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? See, I mean, they didn't necessarily have all the science classes, but they kind of knew what it took to to become a parent, to become uh, pregnant. And so Zechariah demanded evidence uh, and we see the wording in the ancient Greek is that the first set, Zechariah asks for evidence, and here the words is more pensive as the way Mary talks. Uh, instead of evidence, Mary is looking for more of an explanation. See, for Mary, faith in God wasn't the issue. In verse 45, Elizabeth says this about Mary, blessed is she who has believed, Mary, that the Lord would have fulfilled his promises to her. So what's happening here for Mary is not doubt on if God can come through in this promise, but it's a legitimate confusion. And so it's not can, it's how. But not only is it how, but it's also asking why. Why would you pick me, God? Essentially, I know, God, that you have the power, but God, why? Do you know who I am? See, in verse 48, in Mary's song, (coughs) it says, For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. She's talking about herself. Now, that's from the NIV. Now, I'm not a Bible translation snob, but I do think that NIV sometimes doesn't do uh, enough justice uh, to some of the actual Greek text. Uh, This Greek word for uh, what they would call humble state is uh, tamponosin, tamponosin. Uh, and it's this idea that the NIV translates as humble state, but other translations uh, translates it as the, low-ne-ness, the, the lowliness, the low, not lonely, but lowliness of his servant. Why would God bless me, such a low person in the totem pole? This word, tapenosin, is a reference to being poor. It's a reference to those that are being poor and low in status. And low in status. And yet Mary says, why would you pick me to have such an important job? See, a few years ago, actually several years ago now, wow, uh, I was a Young Life leader. And I love that we partner with Young Life because it's close to my heart. And I remember having a conversation. This student called me up and says, hey, Prince, can we have coffee? Yeah, let's have coffee. Uh, This is like at 8 o'clock at night. <clears throat> and then we go, and it's front of Central Market in Shoreline. And I, I remember, we're sitting outside, it was in the summertime. Uh, and he says, Prince, I called you because I want to have a conversation with you about my, about my faith. So what's that? And, and just like Mary, I mean, he echoes exactly what Mary was saying. He was like, I want to follow God. I want to show up to club. I want to show up to Young Life every single week. I want to go to church. But Prince, I don't think you understand the history that I have. The things that I've done and the things that I've said. And he literally went down kind of a laundry list of all the bad things that he's done. And at the end of the list, I will never forget this. He says, Prince, how can a loving and a big God like that love somebody like me? And that sentiment really broke my heart. And I always think back to that story because us, we oftentimes believe that just like Mary, just like my former Young Life student, that because of our laundry list of the things that we've done, that somehow we are disqualified in God's calling, in God's love, in God's grace for us. 
And that's simply not true. And we see, we get to our last point, that above all, in both situations, whether it's your doubt in God, whether it's doubt in yourself, that no matter where you are on the doubt spectrum, that God will always complete the story. In both scenarios with Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph, that God fulfills his promises by delivering the child that was promised. See, God writes the end of our story, your story, and my story. It doesn't end at doubt as long as we keep showing up. See, God worked through ordinary people and people with half-hearted faith. And sometimes that's us and that's me. And I love this encouragement in Hebrews chapter two, verse, uh, chapter twelve, verse two, <clears throat> and it says, "Let us run with perseverance. Keep running, keep showing up. Perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. God is working in your life. God will continue to work in your life." God will continue to love, continue to forgive, continue to pursue, continue to call you towards him no matter where you are in your spectrum of doubt. See, oftentimes we believe that God uses periods in writing our story, period. But the reality is God doesn't use periods, God uses commas when writing our story. God doesn't use periods, God uses commas. And what that means is that's not the end of your story. Don't sit in your doubt. Don't sit in your hurt. Don't sit in your disbelief. Keep showing up just like the athletes at my gym. Prince, I don't believe that this is actually gonna happen, but you know what? I'm gonna show up every day anyways because I trust you. Because I hope maybe one day something different will happen. Just keep showing up because God is working whether you know it or not. And I really do believe this. The healthiness of your doubt is as strong as you're willing to actually show up. Not because you see all the good things happening. Not because you see the progress. Not because you can see in fruition God's calling on your life. Because you have faith. That God, even though you can't see it, says that in Hebrews chapter 11, even though you can't see it, that God is working. And I love this story about the ancient Israelites when they were wandering for 40 years. They started off in Egypt. And God says, I'm going to promise you this land filled with milk and honey, the land of Canaan. It's a beautiful place. I'm going to take you there out of oppression. Do you know how long it took them, the Bible says? 40 years. 40 years it took them from going to point A, point B. Because they went down, they went around, they got lost, they took breaks or disobedient. And then finally, 40 years later, they got through the Sinai Peninsula and made it to the promised land, the place that God has promised. Now, what we know now, due to scholarship, is that they went down into the peninsula and backed up a huge roundabout that took 40 years. If they would have taken the shortcut, the straight path ahead, it said that they would have taken two weeks tops. Two weeks. What? 
See, what we know, though, is that the, the main road from Egypt into uh, the land of, to land of Canaan, if they would have taken that major highway during that time, they would have been slaughtered because of all the Egyptian military outposts. There's no way the entire people of God, hundreds of thousands of people, would have moved from point A to point B in that straight shot without being completely destroyed. But they, at the time, had no idea that God was up to something. That in their midst of complaints, in their midst of doubts, Moses, why, why are we here? Did you bring us here just to kill us? God, where's our food? God, is this really going to happen? All of this in their doubt of themselves, of Moses, their leader, of God. And we see at the end of the story that God was up to something the entire time. And it wasn't according to their plan. It wasn't according to their timeline or their desire or their wishes. And so many times, that's like our story. We doubt God because we want God to show up exactly the way we want. And I think the biggest favor that God has done for us is actually not given us everything we've asked for. Ironically, that's exactly how God has showing up in our lives. Doubt is not the end of the story. But it is if you stop showing up. Doubt can be used as a beautiful thing. There's people all over the scriptures. In chapter, Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the, the hall of faith. <clears throat> that there's people of doubt that was redeemed and considered Holy. And we see this in Abraham, in Isaac, in Jacob, in Joseph, in Moses, in Rahab, a prostitute. The list goes on. And what does it look like to keep showing up? It means beckoning and answering God's calling in your life. And I'll end with the story. <clears throat> my first sermon, I've shared this sermon at the Green Lake location. My very first sermon was when I was in college. And I remember I was prepping for it, and I was so excited to deliver this sermon. And I felt like, God, you're calling me to be a preacher. God, you're calling me to share the good news. And I was prepping weeks and weeks. I remember finally getting up there. In the middle of the sermon, I had a panic attack. I was so afraid uh, of the crowd. I had a huge phobia of public speaking. Uh, I really did. I could not stand imagining myself being in front of people and talking. I know. Weird. And, and it was this crucial point, I kind of feel bad, it was this crucial point we were talking about that we're all sinners and that God is going to forgive us. But I, but I didn't get to the point where God is going to forgive us. I said, oh, we're sinners and et cetera, et cetera. I started sweating bullets. I turned bright red. And I literally, I kid you not, uh, and I think back and I remember it vividly, I ran off the stage I ran off the stage, and I told myself that from that day forward, I will never go in front of a crowd again. I will never preach a single sermon ever again, because I never want that to happen. And then I had people rally around me and say, Prentice, that happens. It's okay. It doesn't actually happen all. They were just being nice. <laughs> you find smoother ways to transition. I stopped, and I left. There's something about being faithful. There's something about showing up. Okay, I'll go. I don't believe it, 
I don't think that God can use me. <clears throat> I doubt that God will use me. But I kept showing up. What does showing up look like for you in this time of doubt if you are going through that? Showing up means keep showing compassion for the poor, the marginalized, because that's God's heart. Keep showing up and being generous. Keep showing up by being invitational and befriending people. Uh, maybe that look different than you, that speak different language than you, that eat different food than you. Showing up means encountering people that make you feel uncomfortable. Showing up means loving and pursuing and forgiving relentlessly because that is the heart of God. Showing up means being part of a community, whether it's here on Sunday or whether it's midweek. Showing up means uh, dropping off food for someone that, that needs it in our church or somebody else or anywhere else. Showing up means that at the end of the day, I will love you no matter what. Showing up means I'm going to actually get to know God through solitude, through scripture, through, through singing. Showing up means, you know what, even in my doubt, I'm just going to show up in faith and see what God has to do. And we're all over the spectrum of faith here. Someone that is so all about God reads the Bible for an hour and a half every morning before 5 a.m. Because like I said earlier, the holier. Uh, and there's some of you that just showed up because you know what? I don't even know why you showed up. I don't, you don't even know why you showed up. And I'm just going to say this. God wanted you here. And God has something to say. And in the midst of our own disbelief and our own doubt that God believes and God has faith for you on your behalf. It's one of the most powerful statements that we can say is that you may not believe in yourself, but God believes in you even more than the faith and the belief that you have for yourself. That's the kind of God that we have. So keep showing up. When I invite the, the worship band to, to come back up and to, to sing a song and to lead us into worship, and this is a time that I really want us to respond yeah, yeah, right now. Sorry if I wasn't very clear. Yeah, come on up. Your stage. But I want us to do an inventory as this song goes on and saying, where are the doubts in my life? And even in the midst of that doubt, how do I keep showing up? Because when we show up in the midst of our doubt, that's a beautiful thing. God uses that to draw you closer to him. Let's worship.